Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to another um, HPB episode of Behind the Knife. We're your HPB team from Brook Army Medical Center and William Beaumont in El Paso. Today's episode will be complementary to our last episode on metachronous colorectal liver mets. So if you hadn't had a chance to check that one out, we'd highly suggest you listen to that one first. Um, but we're extremely excited to bring you this Journal Club episode today uh, discussing mutations in colorectal liver metastases. Um, we'll have a team discussion of the article first, followed by an interview at the April IHPBA meeting with one of the foremost experts in the field and senior author, Dr. Jean-Nicolas Vote. So the specific article we'll be discussing is called Genomic Sequencing and Insight into Clinical Heterogeneity and Prognostic Pathway Genes in Patients with Metastatic Colorectal Cancer. Um, the first author was Dr. Kawaguchi, and the senior author, as we mentioned, was Dr. Jean-Nicolas Vote. Um, Dr. Nelson, do you want to give us a kind of bird's eye view of the article and the intent behind the article to get us started? So I think to introduce this article, the best way to think about this is that right now, metastatic colon cancer is classified into a single risk group of stage four patients. Taken together, those patients have a, have a five-year overall survival around 15%. But we know that amongst these patients, there's a wide range of clinical behaviors with patients that undergo uh, resection of liver-only colorectal metastases having survival up to 40 to 60%. And what we've come to learn is that, you know, these tumors are genomically heterogeneous. They have a wide range of, of mutations within them. And we've been able to start to accrue data on the different mutations that are occurring within these metastases amongst different patients. And now with, with getting all of this data together, MD Anderson in this, in this paper was able to evaluate the frequency of these mutations and really look at mutations within these signaling pathways, how they are uh, or contribute to prognostication amongst these uh, stage four patients. So with that, Beth, um, can you run us through the, the methods of this paper, who the study cohorts were? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Dr. Nelson. So the study consisted of two groups. Um, the first and primary group for the paper was a resectable cohort. So um, this cohort was composed of patients who underwent curative intent liver resection at MD Anderson between the years of 2004 to 2017. Um, they initially identified 1,900 patients, but after excluding those patients without genetic sequencing data for the genes of interest, they ultimately included 579 patients. The authors also included a validation cohort of patients, those who underwent non-surgical treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and this was from April 2014 to September 2016, and this was obtained by a publicly available data set. Why do you think they chose uh, that study population for validation? Um, Dr. Vote is going to discuss this later with us, but from the article, it appears that the intent was to determine if findings from resectable stage four patients could be applied to those with unresectable um, disease, um, which are two fairly distinct groups of patients. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that Anderson published their data and then took a, a publicly available data set from MSK. So not only were they different in that regard, but also different between these two major institutions that treat colorectal liver mets differently. The idea that they could validate 
their cohort and the other cohort, I think makes it very powerful because it was different patients treated at a different institution with different strategies. Yeah. So the other thing to discuss there would be um, the genes that they decided to include um, in their analysis. So in order to do this, they looked at a prior study that summarized the most frequent mutations from the cancer genome atlas um, to produce a list of candidate genes for 10 uh, canonical cancer-related signaling pathways. And uh, the authors of the study we're discussing today then used next-generation sequencing from their samples to further, to further organize the pathways in that list, in that list of 10, into seven canonical signaling pathways. And so those pathways are P53, uh, WNT, RTK-RAS, PI3 kinase, TGF-beta, NOTCH, and cell cycle. Um, Dr. Vreeland, as somebody who trained at MD Anderson, can you tell us about the MD Anderson approach to colorectal liver mets? Yeah, so I think, you know, the biggest thing is probably that Anderson is sort of the home of neoadjuvant therapy, and most patients with colorectal liver mets are going to get chemo first at MD Anderson. Dr. Vreeland, as a methods follow-up question to Connors, next-generation sequencing is discussed quite a bit in the article. For our junior audience members, can you describe next-generation sequencing, or as it's commonly abbreviated NGS, and its relevance to the paper? So the term next-generation sequencing, it just means that you sequence the tumor. And I think next-generation just means that there used to be, you used to sequence for like eight, nine, ten things, and now they do this 64 gene panel and now they're up to like a 256 you know i mean so the next generation part that just means that it's the newest version of genomic sequencing of the tumor so you know over time that will matter right now how much does that matter probably not much but these studies these exploratory studies are why what are so important right you keep looking at all these different mutations and you you put the patients with these mutations into groups and then look at how they did, what their prognosis was, and then you build the story of what the mutations do to the patient's prognosis. So it used to be just RAS, just, just KRAS, and then NRAS was added, and then BRAF was added, and now we have TP53, we have FBXW7, which is in the notch pathway. So you just keep adding more and more of these mutations that have prognostic significance. You know, the ultimate goal of all this sequencing is to develop specific therapies based on mutations. So there are now RAS inhibitors that are being studied and in phase three studies and probably will be approved in the next couple of years. We already have BRAF directed therapy. So the more of these, you know, directed therapies towards specific mutations and specific proteins that are expressed, the more we have in the armamentarium to treat metastatic colorectal cancer and really all cancer. So that, you know, it's kind of a long story, but the, the whole point of it is, you know, you, you gather the information and then you go and analyze the prognosis based on the mutations. And then you know which mutations do worse. Then you try to direct therapies towards patients with those mutations. That's kind of the overarching point of the whole genomic sequencing project. So Lexi, we've introduced the purpose of the study, what the objective was. They have all these different types of patients with different mutations that they can now put into groups and they can hopefully prognosticate based on not only their stage of disease, but now their mutational analysis. Can you run through the results of these two groups for us? Yes. So there were 
1,922 patients that underwent colorectal liver metastasis resection during the study period, but only 579 of them had genetic sequencing information available. The median age of these patients were 55 years, uh, median duration was about 3.8 years, and during the follow-up, about a third of them died and three-quarters of them recurred. And then when you compare it to the validation cohort um, from MSK, 504 patients were identified who underwent non-surgical treatment for metastatic colorectal cancer. And it was similar in that median age was 56, median follow-up was 2.6 years, and about half of them died. Um, so out of the 46 total genes that were analyzed um, in the MD Anderson cohort, 33 genes were among the seven selected signaling pathways. Um, of the 579 patients, uh, the majority of them had alterations in the P53 pathway, about 72% of them, and then 58% had alterations in the WENT pathway, 57% uh, had alterations in the RTK-RAS pathway, 19% in the PI3K pathway, 11% in the TGF-beta, 7% in the NOTCH, and 2.6% in the cell cycle pathway. Um, the important thing is the majority of uh, the alterations were in P53, WENT, RTK-RAS, and the PI3K pathways. So yeah, that was a lot of numbers, Lexi. I think the, the important parts are to understand what the clinical manifestations of those pathways are. So about half of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer are going to have a RAS mutation. That is in the RTK RAS pathway. The other important mutation in the RAS pathway is BRAF. So those are RAS and RAF are both in the same pathway. And BRAF is actually pretty rare, less than 10%, typically right-sided, widely metastatic patients. So if you see a young female patient with a cecal cancer and 40 liver mets, that should say BRAF to you every time. Another half of patients or so will have P53 mutations. That plus a RAS mutation, co-mutation, those patients do bad. The only other one that is clinically really important is SMAD4, which is also rare. That's in the TGF beta pathway, and those patients also do very poorly. Really, I think at the resident level, you should be aware of RAS, P53, and BRAF. Okay, Beth, um, now can you tell us about the survival between the two groups? Yeah, absolutely, sir. So um, ultimately, alterations of four pathways um, affected survival in the resected cohort negatively. These were um, alterations in P53, RTK-RAS, TGF-beta, and then NOTCH. Um, and these were significantly associated with worse overall survival, um, whereas alterations of the WENT pathway, so again with the APC gene, were actually associated with better overall survival. Um, looking at the external validation cohort, which again was composed of unresected patients, alterations of two pathways, P53 and RTK-RAS, were significantly associated with worse overall survival, whereas alteration of the WENT pathway was associated with better overall survival. So Connor, now that we've talked about the survival amongst the two different cohorts and the mutations that were contributing, how did the study evaluate the prognostication uh, incorporating these uh, mutations? So the goal was to develop a score, and the score was based on the presence or absence of mutations and those four more common alterations, so T53, APC, RAS or BRAF, and SMAD4. What they did for the score is you would get a point for having a TP53, a RAS or BRAF, or a SMAD4 mutation, um, and then you would get minus one point for having an APC mutation. 
And that, so that give you a score of zero to four. Based on the multivariable hazard ratios, they scored these gene alterations from one to three. And ultimately, there was no significant difference in hazard ratios between zero and one and between three and four. But in the final pathway-centric risk stratification, so the validation of the score, grade three was significantly associated with worse overall survival or compared, when compared with grade two, and grade two was worse than grade one. And they also showed this in the validation cohort of unresectable patients. Dr. Vreeland, can you help us boil this down to some initial takeaways from the study before we join Dr. Vote for part two of the interview? Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit of alphabet soup that we've kind of been doing here, but uh, the, what I would take away is RAS mutations are common and bad prognosis. P53 mutations are fairly common, probably have some bad prognosis. If you have a RAS and a P53 co-mutation, patients do poorly. If you have a BRAF mutation, patients do poorly. If you have a SMAD4 mutation, patients do poorly. One additional thing, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, and that is the accumulation of multiple mutations within these multiple signaling pathways are worse prognosis. Yeah, so I think the idea of this paper, you know, the, the RAS, RAF, and even the P53 and the SMAD4, these have been around for a while, but the idea of this paper was, can we develop a score based on all these mutations and does that score matter? And I think the answer is yes. You know, the other thing, Dan, that we had talked about in the earlier episode is you talked about the FONG risk score or the clinical risk score. And we said, what you should really do is take the clinical risk score and add in mutations. So I think that's where this paper, you know, you read the font, read about the FONG risk score or the clinical risk score. There's a bunch of papers from Memorial about that. And then read about the mutation score and put those two things together in your head. And you're going to have a pretty good idea of the prognosis of every patient you see with colorectal liver mess. Okay, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Nelson and Dr. Vreeland for putting um, our deep dive into colorectal mutations into clinical context. We'll now transition to the second part of the episode, which was our interview with Dr. Vote. Dr. Vote is a professor of surgical oncology, chief of hepatobiliary surgery, and the Dallas-Fort Worth Living Legend Chair for Cancer Research, all based at MD Anderson. He earned his medical degree at Lausanne University in Switzerland, followed by two years of postgraduate training in internal medicine and surgical pathology. His surgical training commenced first with two years in Switzerland, followed by five years at the Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans. He has completed two fellowships, including a GI and transplant surgery fellowship in Switzerland and a surgical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. He has authored over 600 peer-reviewed manuscripts and is widely regarded as one of the foremost researchers in the field of colorectal liver metastases. We are beyond honored to interview Dr. Vote during the IHPBA conference in New York City this year. While we focused in this interview on his work regarding the genetics of colorectal liver mets, we highly encourage any interested listeners to check out episode one of the HPBA podcast to hear even more details about Dr. Vote's personal journey in hepatobiliary surgery and his path to become a true living legend in the care of patients with colorectal liver disease. This is the Behind the Hype HPB team. Uh, we're excited to be back today. We have uh, one of my Mentor, it's really an honor for me to, to interview you, Dr. Vote. So, Dr. Vote is really the lead of the liver team at MD Anderson, has been so for what a couple of decades. Um, you know, I did my fellowship there, so really everything I know about the liver, I learned from Dr. Vote. So, very excited to have you today to talk about patients in colorectal liver medicine. You know, I think just as a quick intro to the group, kind of how did this journey start? You know, you, you looked into RAS mutations first, and that was kind of 
you know, what, roughly a decade ago? How, how did you kind of get, get down into this rabbit hole and um, get started there? Well, it's better than the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting, you know. I started about um, uh, 12 years ago, and uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I had a little money from an award, and uh, <clears throat> we had a, a, a new platform uh, called the Sequinome, where we could uh, identify or look at uh, 20 uh, somatic mutations. It was very basic. And I did 20 patients. And I saw that those who had uh, several mutations, patients had multiple mutations, but with worse. And then uh, I had to make a big decision on what I'm going to do with this. It's only 20 patients. And then we did 200. Um, so getting into conceptualization of the article, what was your inspiration for this study in particular, and why did it seem like the next obvious step in your research? Well, because I wanted to do something that would um, show you, give you an overview of the landscape. So following the, the initial platform with 20 mutations, we had a platform with where we looked at 50. Mm. And in fact, that's <clears throat> uh, the basis for our current database where we have uh, five to 600 patients with a full panel of 50 mutations or more. Uh, this paper was based on the minimum of 50 uh, mutations uh, analyzed. We uh, wanted to look at the driver mutation, which are the mutations that influence the process or maybe improve the prognosis. And then uh, I had in front of me a paper, um, uh, basic science paper, looking at colorectal carcinogenesis. And I realized that uh, a lot of uh, times when we look at cancer, we're very much intimidated because you have these big posters with all the pathways, and in fact, that paper, you know, 11 pathways in uh, colorectal carcinogenesis, 11 pathways. And since I had the mutation, I said, well, I'm not looking at where, you know, mm -hmm. these players are in the pathways. And that's the origin of the, of the paper. So you had, so you had initially studied RAS. Right. And then you talked about this morning at your meet the professor, uh, professor breakfast that you had noticed that P53 and, and RAS, the association was associated with even worse, the co-mutation. So is this also, is this an extension of that, looking at multiple signaling pathways and how they compound? Yes. So <clears throat> as I was looking at patients uh, in the pathology, uh, section of EPIC, we have the gene panel, the new generation sequencing gene panel. We, we had the fifth, we had the 20, 50, now we have the 304. So, and, um, and, and they were circled. It was very basic. They were circled. And then you have to look at the rest of the report and they tell you, uh, this is a uh, uh, 12C uh, or 12B mutation in RAS, G12, G12, G13. There's a point mutation replacing an amino acid by another one. And I, I 
I was not looking at that. I was looking at mutation, yes, no. That was the basic thing. And, and they were circled. And then I realized that some patients recurring very quickly. I had some patients, I did surgery, and now they are recurring within three months. And, and I was looking at their pathology report and their mutation report. I realized that, you know, I had TP53 circled very often there. And I said, oh, this is something that we need to look at. Because it's not only RAS. I was just like glorified by the RAS publication in House of Surgery. <laughs> and, I thought, and now I see this thing and I said, why don't we look at that? And, and then we looked at more mutations and, and, and we looked and we had other papers. We had medical uh, literature paper uh, looking at SMAT4. So we then applied it. We saw the SMAT4 also, but it's a rare, it's 10% of the patients. The B53, it's, uh, it's 60% of the patients. So we, we, uh, we published the, the second major paper was co-mutation, RASTIP. And um, and then we you have the other ones, the rare one, SMAT4, you have FBX, uh, and you have BRAF. These are the mutations uh, associated with work prognosis. And then we have one, which is also very common, is APC, and, uh, is associated with a, an improvement in prognosis. Uh, these six mutations I just mentioned, were in five pathways. And I don't want to go into the detail of learning these pathways because it's not necessary. But I think if you look at the paper itself, it's interesting to recognize them where they are and how frequent. Last thing, from a, from a methodology standpoint, um, this, this particular paper looked at MD Anderson's cohort from over like a 13-year period in, in patients that underwent resection. And then it was also compared to an, an unresectable cohort. What was the thought process for looking at both of those groups with this? I think we have to bridge with a medical oncologist. We have to bridge always. When it's multidisciplinary, it's always better. When, it, when you reconcile data. I was reading a number of, uh, of papers and just looking at you know, SMAT4 in isolation, they're looking at FBX in isolation, not looking at the full picture. And, and we were very fortunate um, to have the uh, data from Memorial Sloan Kettering from the public domain. So I said, fantastic. We have 500 patients. We have resected. Let's see if in unresectable advanced metastatic colorectal cancer, we have the same uh, adverse uh, uh, mutations, and in fact, we did confirm it, which is very nice because you know it's it's one disease. So the only difference is you know, we have the same you know, um, breakdown in three tier with grade grades one, two, three versus grade three when you when you have multiple three mutations, and um, and we confirmed in the unresectable patient. The only difference between this and our curve is that the grade one, two, three are worse in the unresectable patients.
So diving into the results of the study, um, we already talked about how alterations in the P53 and RAS pathways are associated with worse prognosis, whether they resected or not resected in both databases. But um, there were also some mutations associated with worse uh, prognosis in just the resected patients, um, specifically the TGF-beta and NOTCH pathways. So why do you think there was a difference between whether the patients were resected or not? I think it's a matter of number and multivariate analysis. When you have every weight in the multivariate, you know, they may not necessarily pan out. Um, so uh, I, I think that's what it is. There are papers, independent papers, looking at these, as I said, as this mutation, remutation, FBS, or SMAT4, independent, which have shown their, their prognostic value. Um, in medical uh, patients. So uh, I think it's just a matter of numbers and uh, heterogeneity of the patients who, uh, who were in the database. Yeah, I think I think this morning you said, well, that, you know, we're still learning. It's not like all the answers are out there. When you have small numbers like this, probably there's some noise in the data and things like that. So, you know, continue this, this knowledge continues to evolve. Right. What is interesting also is that in these rare mutations like FBX and uh, and SMAT4, there's an interaction uh, with uh, we published papers separately on FBX and SMAT4. There's an interaction with RAS. So when you mm. have the two together, immediately it's worse mm. FBX or um, SMAT4. So it's a matter of number and how you look at the numbers, but. Um, as I said before, I think I think it gives you a, a, a full picture of the landscape, and it can reconcile the knowledge we have uh, in this uh, carcinogenesis. Um, in the discussion, your group describes the many implications that this work has for management of metastatic colorectal cancer. Given the heterogeneity we see in the survival of patients with stage four disease, um, do you think this research has the potential to impact the existing staging system? That's a very interesting question. There's a stage four uh, classification, mm -hmm. I think, now um, in the AGCC, UICC that's existing. The problem I see right now with the staging system of uh, colorectal cancer is that it's becoming very heavy, loaded mm. with a lot of information. And I'm not sure you're helping patients um, with this granularity when you start staging. It's very complicated. I've been involved with the, with the <clears throat> HPV uh, staging system. It's always a big discussion uh, on the panel because you have uh, the JCC, uh, UICC, you have the medical oncologists, pathologists. It's heavy weight towards pathology, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just traditional pathology, uh, that's very important. But we have, uh, we don't have molecular biologists. I think what's very important from this paper is that you can make comments about the prognosis without being heavily specialized. There's a proposal now in some countries um, to add a molecular uh, biologist or molecular oncologist to the tumor boards because the knowledge is so, mm. becomes so deep. But I think we, we should all try to have a, 
the basic knowledge that covers the field. Mm. Yeah, I think I think one thing that I've been trying to teach residents is a lot of residents know the clinical risk score, you know, which has these kind of basic elements. But I've been trying to add molecular to kind of the bottom of that list, right? So you have all the elements <coughs> of the clinical risk score, but you also got to think about the mutation curve. What? But I think you know, as we get more complicated, in some ways you have to take a little bit of a step back and simplify like good mutations, bad mutations, and then add that into the other factors that, that you know a lot of the residents know about clinical risk score. So I think that's something that's widely noted. Clinical risk score plus in my mind is adding in mutation and it's very important because the long-term prognosis is driven by the mutation. I think you can suppress with the chemotherapy the returns, but if you look at who is cured and who is not cured, so you look at the, the factors affecting survival uh, in the first uh, in the first two years, you'll find it's going to be not only mutation, not only last mutation, but it's going to be size, number of tumor. And then after two years, if you do, you know, if you do a survival curve for all those who survive two years, it's called conditional survival. Eric name, all these names, but conditional survival. So those who survive two years, what are the factors? It's mutation, mm. and and it's and and we looked at us. Uh, and we haven't looked at all the other mutations, and, and they may be also the ones that predict the long term. But we certainly know that um, uh, long term prognosis is is, is well um, represented with the mutation. With regard to long term prognosis, you, you talked about the paper that uh, you know with RAS mutation, how that could affect your surveillance. Regimen. So this this paper uh, could also inform how aggressive we are with active surveillance. Well, I think I think so. We have to look at this in the clinical context. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about all these uh, uh, rare mutation, common mutation, and and when do we use it? So we, we I think at every stage of patient care, this this knowledge of mutation will inform you. Uh, give you an additional information when uh, you talk to patients before surgery, they have questions. But uh, if you see a good response, you can mention it. If you see a good response radiologically and you see the patient has no mutation, there's a concordance mm. between what you see on imaging and what you see in this pathology report you may have with from the resection of the primary, let's say, if you're going to do resection for a little metastasis. And then intraoperatively, is it a good, is it good thing to know about the mutation? Perhaps, uh, because you may have a surprise during the surgery, you may have to make another decision there. So maybe it, it may be something useful. Or if you have late, let's say, RAS mutation patients, you should have a margin and then you said the surveillance obviously surveillance surveillance it's very important to follow up your patients quite a number of patients recur and you were saying this morning that even if a patient had a high risk mutation you would still resect as long as they were surgically resectable um, how how do the different mutations in these pathways affect your surgical planning uh, before and intraoperatively right. so when I started presenting this my colleagues would always come to the microphone and say, that doesn't make a difference because I'll resect it. 
can make a difference, but we're still looking at the size of the metastasis, at the number of the metastasis, at whether or not the lymph nodes are positive in the primary. Does it matter for your resection if you can resect? No. So we could say, okay, I don't look at it. I don't look. I just, I'm a, I'm a resectionist. <laughs> and I don't think you're a good resectionist. So you do have to have a knowledge. And the more knowledge you have, the better you are at, at looking at the imaging, interpretation of uh, of what you see and the evolution of the disease, the response to chemotherapy. Um, so uh, it doesn't in, doesn't inform you in terms of yes or no, but informs you in in this decision, you know, that patients are not responding well to the chemo. You know, now you know you're treading some waters that are not that great and uh, <clears throat> Are you going to do a very extensive resection with a, in a patient who has comorbidities? And, uh, or are you going to give a little bit more chemo? And, and that, that's important in your discussion also with the medical oncologist. Remember, your medical oncologists are your best friends. So it, you, you, have to, you have to make them your friends. You have to make them your friends. So, and, and I give you... <clears throat> Uh, an approach to that, um, how do you make them your friends? Well, when you start in practice as a young surgeon, you just partner with the medical oncologist just arrived. <laughs> I, I rarely got, when I started at MD Anderson, I almost never received referrals from the senior people. I would receive the worst cases from the senior people. They would send easy cases to, the, <laughs> to their friends already. They, they were the ones they, they were connected with, but they would just send me a banana peel. <laughs> and I would go there and I would say, no, I'm, I'm not resetting. Oh, I'm not resetting. And uh, so go with your, your, your younger colleagues and then start. And it takes, it takes years. It takes, so the referral practice takes years. And it keeps growing. And don't worry if it takes 10 years, but have this connection with your colleagues. And then, there, is this changing in your hands what therapy patients get? I know you talked a little bit about your patient selection, but are you more apt to give uh, full FOX theory if someone has a worse mutation and full FOX if they have no mutation? Is that, is that changing at all for you yet? Or do you think there's a role to, to look at that? We give typically for folks here to the patients who are borderline resectable uh, and uh, young patients, and they can tolerate heavy, heavy chemo, fofoxiribab, and, and we know that there's an improvement in survival in the advanced stage four disease and resectable, so uh, that's been proven. I don't use the mutation right there in that context. We heard a little bit of advice for our general listeners, but a lot of our audience are young uh, general surgery um, residents and trainees. So do you have any specific takeaways from running this study um, or the uh, results of the study that you think we should carry away into our clinical practice? Right. So I want to touch also on the, on the new extension of, of this uh, new generation sequencing which is the circulating tumor DNA. Uh, I think it's, it's something that's 
fantastic. It's you. It's positive or negative. You, you have these mutations in your blood. It's like a fingerprint of the cancer. So now uh, you can um, you know more about this cancer. You know more about what you do with surgery because uh, if there is circulating tumor DNA before surgery and becomes negative after surgery, it's really good news. Uh, it makes you very proud. But what's the implication? Well, the circulating tumor DNA can be used for follow-up mm. of the patients. Let's say there's an enlarging lymph node, you don't know what to do, and uh, <clears throat> you, you don't want to do necessarily a PET scan. Immediate information, you can do that. That, that will help you. Um, so, um, the circulating tumor DNA is a yes, no, but it gives you also all the mutations now. And there's an informed, um, uh, informed platform where the mutations that are found in the blood are compared to the mutation in the tissue. And it's the most sensitive and accurate platform there is now. So um, that's what we are looking at right now. And I call it a you know, totally non-invasive, essentially equivalent of a biopsy. It's, it's not an imaging, it's a cheap PET scan. It's, it's like the CEA, if you will. We were following the CEA for recurrence. You can do that. Now, more and more uh, insurance are reimbursing this. Um, and it's recommended to do some kind of test in addition. Now, new generation sequencing or CTDA, it's, it's recommended by including NCT. Do you think, uh, I know it's not prime time, but... Are you, will you be making adjuvant decisions based on cTNA someday? If you can clear that cTNA with, with surgery, you think we'll get to a point where we say, you're probably okay, we'll just watch. I think we'll reach that point. Because yeah. we, we have also asked the question for adjuvant therapy after resection of primary colorectal cancer. Should we do three months, six months? The idea study, the randomized study idea, uh, didn't prove that you could get away with three months for sure, but some patients probably will do as well with three months only. So why should you do all this chemotherapy after the resection? So uh, one intermediate approach, and we have a protocol now looking at that, is to uh, <clears throat> give capecitamine perhaps or 5 f only rather than restarting the full fox after surgery for three months. And, uh, and we have a protocol now which will look at that. Patient with negative CTDNA will, will be assigned to 5 f u And those who have a positive CTDNA will continue uh, to get their completion by additional three months. In fact, three months before surgery, three months after. If it's two months before surgery, it's four months after, so six months. So give that and then see the disease-free survival of these two groups afterwards. And then we'll compare that. So this is a protocol, but uh, it may be that we'll do it anyway because we, we, we think uh, some patients have had too much chemo. In my opinion, there's a the push now to say, okay, well, some patients could, may not benefit from, um, from the chemo at all, so why not just uh, reset them if they have uh, 
Maybe they are a single, or they are small, no adverse factor. I think you can do that in a very select group of patients. Very select group of patients, the metachronous, uh, two years uh, after resection of primary, there's a single metastasis. Are we going to give chemo, no chemo? That's a, that's a good situation. I would say to say, okay, well, we're not going to give chemo perhaps in these patients. But uh, in most patients, you, you, need, you need to surf on the chemo because surgery is adjuvant, in my opinion. Surgery is adjuvant to chemo for most patients. And, and, and the result will be, well, maybe less chemo. If you do surgery in those patients, they'll get less chemo uh, because you'll be able to stop the chemo. So that's the benefit. Otherwise, you know, it's chemo for life, stage four disease. Talk about how this project came out of your reading of other literature and things like that. For the residents and fellows out there, how do you recommend approaching that problem? You've been out of training for a long time and you're still reading all the time. What are you reading? Where are you getting these articles? Are you searching PubMed for a topic of interest? Are you getting journals in the mail and reading them cover to cover? How do you approach that that issue at this stage of your career? And how did you approach it earlier? So I'll give you a, <laughs> I'll give you an answer that's a, it's a contemporary answer. Uh, I've, I've found out like, I can't follow all these journals. It's yeah. just impossible. Yeah. And when you get 300, 500 emails a day, how can you follow? And, and you get you get the emails from House of Surgery, from Jacks, from uh, <clears throat> House of Surgical Oncology and whatnot, and HPB. And then, and then you have to look at all these. And by the time you look at all these emails, I mean, you, your head spins. I find that Twitter. Is a good platform. Is a good, I started Twitter in 2018. <laughs> I didn't tweet until uh, December of last year. And now these articles, which are relevant, come up. There's a little bit of discussion. Um, I try not to enter in all the discussions. Or, and some people asking questions, or what would you do, etc. I was looking at this uh, article about the <clears throat> adjuvant four folks from, from Japan after the resection, the study they did over five or ten years and, and, and they concluded, well, chemo is not useful. Fox is not useful as adjuvant after the resection for metastasis. And the end point was the survival at five years and was not different. But the disease free survival is the p value is 0.003, it's very different. So mm-hmm. those who received the fall folks did not recur immediately. So they called it a negative study. But then I saw on Twitter, I saw several things. I saw regional surgery editorial that was supporting the study, say, well, we should be careful with the chemo. And then I found out also on Twitter, a letter to the editor from the medical oncologist from Europe who they said, is it really a negative study? Yeah. And it was the opposite point of view, and I retweeted it. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. What's your Twitter handle, Dr. Bote? We're going to get you 20,000 followers here, I think. What's your, uh, how do we find it's you? It's at Bote, MD. At Bote, it's capital B, and capital MD. So you, you heard it here first. All your medical knowledge comes from Twitter. 
Um, you seem to have had multiple moments during your career, um, and you talked about this a little bit um, on your interview on, on the HPBA podcast, where you got pushback from the surgical community about some of your research. So I think you spoke a little bit about it initially with portal venous embolization and also a little bit with the mutations. How do you handle that in a research career and, and keep pushing forward? You know, it's like when you when you give a talk and you have a bad talk or and, uh, and you survive. <laughs> See, that's an aura. You know, there's the pushback, but um, the idea is a good idea. It's going to be validated. Mm-hmm. Other people will publish on it sooner or later. And I think that's the best. Uh, mm. uh, it's, it's, it's the best uh, confirmation that what you did was useful. And, and then you have to dig deep and focus on one, two, or three diseases and be really students of the disease and, uh, and, uh, and have this knowledge that will give you joy. You know, when you look at a CT, it's okay. You, you, see, you look at the association of what you see with, you know, with, with on, on imaging, for instance, and what you know about the mutation. You have to, if, if, if you see patients, you help patients, you continue, you will, you will invariably get the confirmation and uh, be resolute. It's courage. It's like courage in surgery, basically, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a lot of courage in surgery. When you start, it's, it's very difficult. It's very, it's very, you know, it's very difficult. Better and better uh, by doing more and seeing more patients, and uh, and there are moments of defeat, but. Um, it's very, very, very stressful. When we do surgery, there's a physical exhaustion and a mental exhaustion. When I was starting as a, as a young faculty, uh, I would go to my office after the, some, um, I was doing also low colorectal cancer. After low, low colorectal resection, I would just lie down in my office, have my feet up mm-hmm. for an hour. Couldn't dictate the case. So, it's, so yeah, this is reality. But you recover. Majority of patients are happy and recover. Mm-hmm. And that's good. That's a rule. Mm-hmm. Great. Sure. That's a good way to end. Yeah. Uh, really appreciate your time. It was great, great to talk. Covered a lot of stuff. Thank you, team. Thank you, the behind the knife team. Uh, you are a great team, and I really enjoyed the, the question, the discussion, and uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. On behalf of the Hepatobiliary team, thanks again to Dr. Vote for sharing his knowledge and his time, and thank you to everyone at home who stuck with us. We'll see you for the next HPB episode. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.